Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. As you're finding Hebrews chapter 8, um, let me just mention to Caleb and Leah, we are so thankful for you and your ministry. Um, when I think of you guys, I, I think of Psalm 16. And David says about Israel, he says, um, as for the saints in the land, these are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. That's how David felt about his people. And Caleb and Leah, that's how Crosspoint feels about you. You're the saints in the land. Uh, you're the excellent ones and in whom is all our delight. So we love you guys. We're glad that you're with us for these months. As you're finding Hebrews chapter 8, let me mention, uh, Tyler alluded to it, that we are going to take a, a little detour this Wednesday night in our four-week midweek fellowship. Uh, it's another round of things that uh, we, things about, we need to talk about, uh, just kind of four random topics. Last week, we, took, we looked at unforgiveness and bitterness and how to deal with that. The plan was this week to look at assurance and doubt, but uh, given the events of this past week and a half or so in the Middle East, in particular, the terrorist attacks in Israel, uh, I thought it would be prudent and wise for us, even though we've spent a good amount of time over the years talking about Israel and what Christians should think about theologically about Israel, uh, I think that the acuteness of and the intensity of what's going on there uh, warrants us revisiting that topic. And so we're going to look at a Christian perspective on the attacks on Israel this Wednesday. I would love for you to come and to uh, join with us as we want to think biblically about uh, those very, very important events. Okay, back to Hebrews, our text. The most important thing we can do this morning is to think deeply about the Word and about what it says to us. And so we are journeying through this study of the letter of Hebrews, one of the most glorious books in the New Testament. It's a letter full of high Christology. It's where we get some of the most important truths about Christ and all of the Bible. And we find ourselves in, in chapter 8. Now, um, we have been looking at uh, is starting in chapter 7, the, the, these, these deep waters of Hebrews and looking at the priesthood and Jesus, we, we looked at this mysterious figure of Melchizedek a week or so, a couple weeks ago. And now we're getting into Hebrews chapter 8, 9, and 10, which, which may be some of the, the deepest, maybe slowest parts of all of Hebrews. And, and so let me let you back behind the curtain of my heart a little bit as I think about preaching through a book like Hebrews, there's kind of two ways to approach it. You can, in one sense, sort of step on the gas a little bit and go really, really quickly. And there's some brothers that I really respect, I listen to, pastor friends of mine that I listen to around the country that have preached through Hebrews. Some of them have just gone through this portion of Hebrews in one or two sermons. And because there's a lot of repeat that goes on in Hebrews 7, 8, 9 and 10, the writer of Hebrews is revisiting some themes, and, and they've gone quite fast through that. You guys know I can't do that. <laughs> thought about it, but no, I thought about it for about 10 seconds. But then there's the other side. You can go really, really slow, and you can kind of go Martin Lloyd-Jones on it. 
And you can take like a verse at a time. And, you know, Lloyd-Jones, if you look at his little app, he was this Welsh preacher in London back in the mid-1900s. It took him like nine years to go through Romans. So I think that's a touch slow. So we're, we're trying to find kind of a, a middle ground here uh, of the right pace to go through Hebrews. But here's what I, I do want you, here's, what, here's the sort of signal I want to give you this morning. As we get into Hebrews chapter 8, we're just going to handle the first six verses. The Hebrews 8 is, is getting into this idea of this better covenant that Jesus has made. There's massive theological implications in these coming chapters. Now, you can't come in here cold. This is a two-way street. You've got to look at your Bible. So I want you to open up your own Bible. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can use the one in front of you. Uh, you really, I want you to see the words in your own copy of God's Word. I think that'll help you. But as we go through this, I, I, want, I want us to find the right pace. And I do think there are some topics in here that we're going to revisit a good bit in the next couple weeks. There's going to be some repeat. But I think it's worth us doing because there, here's the calculation that I have made pastorally as, as a preacher. I think that there is so much distance between us in our culture even in American Christianity today, and the wonderful world of biblical imagery and logic, that it doesn't serve us well to take these massive theological truths that we find in these next couple chapters and just kind of breeze through them. And so I want us to marinate a bit at an appropriate pace, and I want us to think deeply and come back to and revisit maybe a few Sundays in a row these glorious promises. So with that as my caveat, let me... Read Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. Listen to the word of God as I read it. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. That's quoting Exodus 25, verse 40. But as it is, verse 6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. All right, let me give you the flow of how we're going to work through this text. I have four headings, and we're just going to work quickly through them Settle on one a little bit longer than the others. Here's the four headings. I think this text is about how Jesus is a better priest. He's a better sacrifice. He ministers in a better tent. And he enacts better promises. So better priest, better sacrifice, better tent, better promises. Let me pray. Lord, help us as we look at this text. Thank you that we can sing. Thank you that we can send out missionaries and hear from them as they come back. Thank you that we can gather as your people, do wonderful things. Now help me, Lord. The goal is not eloquence. The goal is not to be, have our ears tickled. The goal is to see your face, 
Jesus Christ to meet God in his text. So Lord, do that. Holy Spirit, would you be active this morning in our hearts? Would you blow the dust out of the temple of our hearts? Would Christians be conformed into the image of Christ more? And would unbelievers have their eyes opened and their hearts made alive for your glory and our good? In Jesus' name, amen. The argument of Hebrews chapter 8 at the beginning is really summarizing what has been the argument of Hebrews chapter 7, that Jesus is a better priest. He says it there. Now the point, in fact, some people, I've read a few commentators that say that that, and this is quite a statement, I'm not sure I agree with it, but smart people have said it, so I I sort of feel like I should pay attention to it, is that some people say that Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1 is the very center of Hebrews. It's a kind of summary statement. And the author is saying, the writer is saying, the point that we are saying is this, that we have such a high priest, one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So even though it starts a new chapter, it's really a continuation of the the argument of chapter 7 that we have a high priest. And remember the argument that we made over the last few weeks is that he, Jesus, is like this Old Testament figure, Melchizedek, who arrives on the scene mysteriously. No beginning, no end. Not because he was this sort of not um, uh, other than human figure, but that because God inspired Moses in the writing of Genesis to not include the details of the beginning or the end of Melchizedek's life, and because he even comes before the law, which is given later in Exodus, he's this kind of shadow or type of Jesus who isn't from the earthly tribe of Levites. He's the son of God, and he comes. He has no beginning, no end, and he is, Melchizedek is a kind of shadow of the true and better priest that we need, which is Jesus, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. So, so really, chapter 8 is a transition from the priesthood of Jesus into what this priest has done for us in sacrifices and enacting a better covenant. And let me just say that if you're, if you're visiting Crosspoint for the first time, or maybe you've never been around the Bible much, or, or, or the message of the gospel much, let me tell you that, that the very principal message of Hebrews is the very message of the, the gospel itself, that God is holy and that we are sinful and that there is no hope of us bridging that gap or standing before the Lord in our own merit. We need a mediator. We need somebody to go before us. And the point of Hebrews up to this point has been that Jesus is the one true mediator. In fact, he's God the Son. God himself in the flesh, who represents God to man, and he is representing us to God, so he stands in the middle. He is our high priest. He's our better priest. He's the one true priest. And so if you're, if you're not familiar with this concept, maybe you've seen Christianity or religion as general, in general as, as a, a set of principles that you have to apply to yourself to help yourself live a better life, that is a lie. Although it contains elements of truth, that's not the heart of the Christian message. The heart of the Christian message is that a holy God reconciles sinners who have rebelled against him through the work of his Son, who stands between God and people as their mediator, as their priest. So you need a priest, and... And the point of Hebrews is that Jesus is the priest that you need. And 
Not only is he a priest, he's not only a mediator, he's actually our sacrifice as well. Look at verse 3. This gets into the second thing. He's not only a better priest, he's a a better sacrifice. Verse 3 says, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. That's alluding to Old Testament priests. All of Leviticus, all of the book of Leviticus is about the sacrifices and gifts that the Levites, which was the tribe of the one of the 12 tribes of Israel that were given the task of being priests. So when you look at the, the Bible, the book name Leviticus, that's about the tribe of Levites who were the priests. And they were, it's all about instruction of what they were to do in their priestly duty to, in a temporary shadow, forerunning sense, picture and point to the priesthood of Jesus that was to come. And so in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, these priests were a temporary shadow meant to mediate God and his relationship with Israel. But it was never meant to finally and fully actually bring about the salvation that God's people needed. It was meant to point them to the salvation that was coming in Jesus. So every high priest, verse 3, is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice. Thus, it's necessary for this priest, meaning Jesus, also to have something to offer. And what does Jesus offer? What is his better sacrifice? Well, it is himself. It's his own life. We read last week in Hebrews chapter 7. Look at the end of Hebrews chapter 7. You have your Bibles open in front of you. It says that it was indeed fitting, verse 26, that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So Jesus, the the Son of God, completely holy, offers up himself on the cross. The whole point of this section of Hebrews is that Jesus is the once for all sufficient sacrifice. Now here's the deal. If you've been around Cross Point for any length of time, I, I, I think you know this. And there can be this kind of uh, uh, rhythm. It's a bad rhythm that Christians get in where they understand, they see the beauty of Jesus, we see the glory of the sacrifice of Jesus, and it just becomes kind of rote, and then we want to move on to other things. Friends, I pray that as we meditate at an appropriate pace about what's going on in the Holy of Holies in the heavenly court in Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10, that we, that we never lose sight of the wonder and the glory and the daily need to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done in offering up himself for us. We talk about preaching the gospel to ourselves. And part of preaching the gospel to ourselves on a daily basis is remembering what God has done with our sin and what he has done by putting it on Jesus' shoulders on the cross. He bore our sin and he satisfied it. He removed the holiness of God. And not only did he remove our guilt and the penalty, he actually gave us the righteousness of Jesus. That's what, that's what Tyler read for us earlier in Hebrews chapter 3, that, Paul's point, as he's writing to the Hebrew church, he says that my, my confidence is not in my righteousness, not a righteousness that comes from the law or by my deeds, 
but through faith in Jesus Christ. So it's the righteousness of God. So what's happening on the cross, what's happening on the sacrifice of Jesus, why his priesthood is so much better, why his work is so much better, why the new covenant is so much better, is because Jesus not only temporarily removes our sin, he permanently removes the punishment for our sin, but he does something even better. He gives us his righteousness. So before we move on, just a, a couple implications. Well, we are justified, friends. We, we need to remind ourselves of this. We are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. You're made right with God, not by anything that you can do, but by what God has done in Christ and then giving you a new heart. That's called regeneration. That's the new birth. He makes your dead heart alive. And then with that new heart comes the gift of faith. And that gift of faith then allows you, enables you to trust in Jesus. In that moment of faith in Jesus, it's simultaneous at the moment of salvation. By faith then, you believe in Jesus, you turn from trusting in yourself, and the Bible says that what happens in the heart of a person in that moment is they're justified. They're made right with God. Their sins are forgiven. Legal standing, in a sense, spiritually speaking, we are right with God. Our guilt has been removed, but not only that, the righteousness of Jesus has now been imputed and given to us. So we are righteous before God. Even though we've got a lot of living left to do, even though we've got a lot of growing left to do, that's sanctification. That comes after the moment of justification. But at that moment, we are justified. Sins are forgiven. Guilt is removed. Righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. So then... Think about this before we move on. This is, this is so glorious. It's, it's almost hard to believe it's so glorious. If you are a Christian, because of your justification, you cannot be any less or any more loved by God than you are right now because you're in Christ. In fact, the, the, the most fundamental way that a Christian is described in the New Testament by Paul in his letters is that we are in Christ. We're, we're united with him. We're in Christ. And the implications of that are enormous. It means that all that's Christ's is ours. And so when the Father looks at us after our justification... He, he can't love his son any less. There's never a time when his, his love for his son is going to wax or wane. And his love for Jesus can never, can never be more. I mean, it's, it's, it's infinitely glorious. And so if, think about it logically, this is the logic of the New Testament. If we're in Christ, we can be loved, never be loved any less or any more than we are right now in Christ. And the battle, the battle of the Christian life the battle of dealing with guilt and self-condemnation and all of the, 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 the missteps of our sanctification is reminding ourselves of that great fact. And so why do we come back to this again and again? Why do we marinate a little bit? 
Because if we could understand, if we could, if we could just grab a hold of and never forget the implications of our justification, we would rest so much more in the gospel. But friends, all of us, even the strongest among us, even those among us that know the most Bible, we all suffer from the same gospel disease. What is it? It's gospel amnesia. And so we... So I don't, I, I don't apologize for, for dwelling here a little bit and reminding ourselves that, that we have a better sacrifice than as Jesus. And what are the implications of this sacrifice? Friends, theology doesn't get any clearer or deeper than this. The reminding ourselves of the implications of our justification. Resting in that. You are never less or more loved. You cannot be any less or any more loved than you are by Christ, in Christ right now by the Father better sacrifice. But it's not only a better priest and a better sacrifice, but now I think, I think uh, that Hebrews 8 is, is the writer is tipping his hand. He's, he's, he brings up a topic that he's going to delve into in the coming chapters, and I want to spend a little time exploring it before we end, and it is that Jesus is a minister in a better tent. So what does that mean? Let me read verses 2 again. Uh, read verse 2, he says, he's a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So what's going on there? So, so in the Old Covenant, in, in the Old Testament, when the priesthood was established by God through Moses and Exodus, so remember what happened, God forms a nation through Abraham he then rescues that nation out of Egyptian slavery at the end of, Je- end of Genesis. They then are on the other side of the Red Sea, and they wander in the desert for 40 years. In fact, it was a 12-day journey from the opposite side of the Red Sea to the Promised Land that God called them to, but it took them, it was a 12-day journey, it took them 40 years. <laughs> it sounds a little bit like sanctification, doesn't it? We, it's kind of like, um, I learned this saying when I came to the South, we don't have this in the south of California, but we have this saying in the south of, of uh, the United States that Jennifer told me once when I did something a little bit harder than it should have been, she said, well, you went around your elbow to get to your nose. You guys ever say that? Well, that's, that's sanctification in a sense, right? And that's the story of Israel in the Old Testament. 12-day journey, 40 years, God brings Moses to Sinai, he gives Moses the law, and part of this law includes this system of sacrifice and priestly duties and this tent, this tabernacle that was a remote tent that they would set up and tear down as they moved throughout the desert, which was a shadow of what would eventually become the temple after Israel arrives in the promised land in Jerusalem for the second half of the Old Testament. But even that permanent temple in Jerusalem is temporary, is pointing forward to the ultimate tent or temple, which is heaven. And that's what verse 2 is getting at here, is that Jesus is a minister, he's a better priest, he offers a better sacrifice, because what he's doing isn't in a canvas tent in the desert, or even in a beautiful stone building on earth. What he's doing is in the true tent, the, the true tent of heaven that the Lord dwells in, that the Lord is set up in, not men. And so what's, what's going on here, I think, in the beginning of Hebrews chapter 8, is that the writer is wanting to lift our eyes 
from the earthly work of earthly priests to the heavenly work of Jesus on the cross, but in the tabernacle of heaven, in the holiest place, to satisfy God and to bring us into reconciliation and restored fellowship ultimately with God forever. The true tent that the Lord set up is the ultimate, the heavenly dwelling place, the, 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 the reuniting of fellowship with God and his people that was in the garden that was broken because of sin that is promised to be restored to us at the end of Revelation is the place that Jesus is, is mediating his work and, and he's the better tent and the writer of Hebrews is wanting to lift our eyes. And remember the context. He's writing to these people that are enduring persecution by a Roman empire and instead of giving them practical advice on, on, on what to do there in this moment. He does that later on, but he, first he's wanting to ground them in the beautiful promise of the hope of eternity and where Jesus is doing his work is in this tent where we will be with him forever in this heavenly tent that God has set up, which is heaven forever with him. And it's one of the major trajectories, I think, of, of Hebrews moving forward. Let me, let me uh, hopefully prove it to you. So Hebrews, let me just, while you got your Bibles open to Hebrews, you're in Hebrews 8 now, just kind of flip a page over, unless you have one of those really small print Bibles, um, and I have one of those, and Reuben was making fun of me because, oh, he, Reuben said this morning when we were praying, he said, Brad, you, you're breaking out your big Bible. <laughs> I said, yeah, man, I, I can't see anymore, goodness gracious. So Hebrews chapter 10, I want you to see, here's the point I'm trying to make by reading these verses, is I'm wanting to, to see that the trajectory, the, if I could use this word, the, the uh the eschatological or the, the future, the, the, the reckon, eschatology is the study of the last times or end times, which I don't really like that word because it's actually the study of future forever. So it's, we have this sense that that's the end, but it's actually just the end of this age, and it's the beginning of eternity. And so the writer of Hebrews, all of this practical discussion about what Jesus does in his priesthood, underneath it all is meant to cause us to lift up our eyes and to see the hope that awaits the Christian in the better tent, which is with God forever in heaven. And look at what, look at, just, just, I want you to see this thread throughout Hebrews. Hebrews 10, got to put my glasses back on. Hebrews 10, verse 25, he says, I can't wait to get to this. This is, I think, for my money, I think uh, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 is like the, it's the great uh, uh, conclusion that the author makes after all of this discussion about Jesus' work. So I can't wait to get to Hebrews 10, 9 through, 19 through 25. But let me read 25. He's, he's encouraging us after all of this meditation on what Jesus is doing. He says, don't neglect to meet together as a habit of some, but encourage one another. Why? All the more as you see the day. The day drawing near, the, the day, the dawning of eternity and the return of Christ. So, so he's pointing us onward. Verse 34 of Hebrews chapter 10. Listen to this. He's wanting, he's wanting to encourage them as they're enduring suffering and persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire in their context. And he says in verse 34 of Hebrews 10, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. 
But what's that getting to? He's, he's saying that, listen, one of the ways he's encouraging them, he's exhorting them, he's commending them, and saying one of the ways that you were, were, remain steadfast in trial is that you were looking for the hope of the future of being with God forever with the priest in Christ in the tent, a better possession and an abiding one. He's pointing us onward to heaven. Hebrews chapter 11. Look at it. Look at your own Bible. Come on. Hebrews 11 verses 8, 9, and 10. This is this beautiful chapter 11 that we're so familiar with where He's sort of ending his theological argument in 10, and then 11 is about these examples of people who endured in the faith. And he says in in Hebrews 11, verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place, out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So in a kind of temporal Old Testament sense, Abraham was called from one piece of dirt in the Middle East to another, from where he was to the promised land. But actually, the New Testament doesn't talk so much about a physical place on earth, the promised land, and this has implications about what we'll talk about on Wednesday night, but it's actually that Old Testament shadow of Canaan, a real place, is a kind of shadow that's pointing Abraham and all of his descendants by faith upward. So verse 9, by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. But even though he was there, verse 10, for he was looking forward, catch the logic here, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. He's calling us onward. Verse 16, Hebrews 11. Look at the same, same chapter. But as it is, speaking of just a general collection of Old Testament saints, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And what's that city? It's not an earthly city. It's the new heavens. It's the new Jerusalem. It's being with God forever. It's called a city here. Other times it's called a garden, a temple, a tent. It's being with God forever. Let's keep going. A couple more. A couple more. Don't, 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 get, don't get tired on me now. Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, verse 28. Look at this. Therefore, let us be grateful for we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's coming to us. Therefore, let us offer to God acceptable worship with, rever- with reverence. Uh, offer to God acceptable worship, worship with reverence and awe. And then finally, Hebrews 13. Notice the trajectory. Remember the image of Hebrews 8. This tent that Jesus ministers in. It's a better place that he's preparing for us. He's work to sacrifice before the Lord for us that we will be with him. Hebrews 13 verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood, meaning his work on the cross. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Verse 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. I hope I've made my point that I think the trajectory of Hebrews from this point on, as we're dealing with all of these glorious realities of what happened on the cross, 
is pointing us onward and upward. Now, friends, I said one of the great challenges of the Christian life is remembering our justification. I think that is the case. But maybe the second most difficult tension in the Christian life is dealing with the tension between life now and life to come. There's this balance between living fruitfully and wisely in a good way, life here on earth, and longing for heaven. In one sense, there's a kind of a ditch that we can fall off to on the other side. We can be prone to make too much of this life, and, and therefore, we don't focus enough on the future, and we become full of anxiety, and it's just a kind of man-sitterness. And then, then our faith in God just becomes a mere pragmatic venture of all the things that God can do for us now. And surely that's not the trajectory of the New Testament. But the other ditch that I think is also a ditch that we can fall into is that there can be a way, a kind of detachment, a kind of pietism where we just sort of wait for heaven and then we have no urgency about this life. We, it's kind of like, well, I, I, I see the gospel, I trust in the gospel, and my goodness, the world's going, you know, downhill. Let's, let's, you know, boy, I didn't like that song last Sunday. Pastor's sermon was too long. You know, we just kind of, we just kind of become pietistic sort of people waiting for heaven. But there's this balance here in the New Testament. Actually, what, what the writer of Hebrews is doing as he's calling these people to look up to this tent, this city, this temple, this dwelling place of God is as they focus on that, as they, balance, as they have this proper biblical balance, setting our heart on that, then rightly sends us back into our present day and enables us with clear heads and clear eyes to live here and now, even as we long for then. And friends, who among us can have that perspective on their life, on their own. None of us. How can, you, how can you live in a country where you live in a city where there's enough Christians to fit on these two rows, as Caleb and Leah shared with us, if you don't believe that you're actually going somewhere and that finally and fully it's all going to be worth it? How can you deal? How can, how can you... I know, <laughs> You know the people I respect most pastorally, the people that, that my heart is drawn to the most, is people that I know are wrestling with tremendous sin, and yet they keep showing up and keep putting themselves under the authority of the local church. They're, they're, they're some of the hardest people, I think, for the church to love, their, their problems are complicated, uh, but there's something about those people that I look at them and I say, man, there's this strength in them. And what keeps, what keeps a person hanging around? What keeps a person giving themselves over to accountability? What keeps a person 
still confessing sin and still repenting to the Lord because there's this magnet in people like that, even in their, in a sense, weakness, which is standing on a great strength, which is this hope of heaven that's pulling them onward. You see that? And so sometimes it's strange. It's like the people that are most beat up, that have the most trouble, but still hang in there are actually, they're actually, they're like, I look at those people and I just say, Praise God for you because there's something in you that's drawing you onward and it's the hope of heaven. It's because Jesus is in the tent in heaven and he's done the work for us and he's in that tent and he's pulling his people up to him. Now, I I don't want to get involved in some of these millennial view debates as to whether or not we're going to heaven or heaven's coming to us. Okay, I'll have that discussion. The point I'm trying to make is, is that you were made for eternity and having that eternal balance in your heart, but still living in the real world now and balancing that with a bunch of other people that are helping you do that is the very crux of the, of the Christian life. And goodness, it's hard to do, isn't it? Man, it's hard to do. And who can do it on on their own? And so we need a merry band of other dusty travelers who are so prone to lose perspective to do it with. So along the way, you know, when you're stumbling on the ruck march of life, your buddy can say, hey, come on, come on, keep your head up, keep your head up. Come on, come on, come on. Let me read to you this quote from... uh, this guy named Peter Kreft. I came across this, across this quote. I don't know anything about this guy. Um, and I don't think he believes the Bible like we do. I remember I read this quote years ago, and some young guy in the church looked up this guy and found out that he had some crazy views on stuff, and he just lost his mind that I could quote a guy like this. It's, oh, my gosh, Brad, relax, relax. I, I'm not advocating anything about this guy other than the thing he touches on in this quote, okay? (laughs) All right. This is what he says, and I love this. He says, now, suppose both death and hell were utterly defeated. Now, before I read the rest of this, look at me, not the quote, look at me, look at me, look at me. I want to put something in your head here. Remember, what we had this image I want in your head is that Jesus is a minister in a better tent, and he's in that tent, and he's doing something there. He has done something there because he's, like the rest of you, he's pulling us up there. We're going to be with him someday. The city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And this is okay. Back to, okay, now we can look at the screen again. All right. Now suppose both he- death and hell were utterly defeated. Oh, by the way, they are. Okay. Suppose the fight was fixed. Suppose God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future and you saw with indubitable, not sure what that means, but it sounds awesome, <laughs> with indubitable certainty that despite everything, your sin, your smallness, your stupidity, you could have free for asking your whole crazy heart's deepest desire, heaven, eternal joy. Would you not return fearless? And singing, what can earth do to you if you were guaranteed heaven? To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny less, 
a scratch on a penny. Let me put this in Hebrews 8 terms. If Jesus has done what Hebrews is saying he has done, and if he's done it in a place in the tent that God has pitched, his own tabernacle, and the point of the rest of Hebrews, at least one of the main points of the rest of Hebrews, is that he's pulling you to himself. And if you could, if you could really believe that in your situation that you're facing today, in your most difficult situation that you're facing today, would you not return fearless and singing? <laughs> what a friend we have in Jesus. <laughs> what a friend we have in Jesus. Jesus to bring us all the way home. Lord, as we sing this last song, Lord, put eternity in our hearts. Put eternity in our hearts so we can live this week for the glory of God. I need eternity so I can live now. And I pray that you do that, Lord, for the good of your people. In Jesus' name.